0: Acts chapter 2. Thank you, by the way, to all of you who came to our Good Friday service. You do things like that and you have no idea who's going to show up or if anybody's going to show up. And I was very pleasantly surprised during our Good Friday service to see 80 or 90 people here. And uh, that was a blessing. And I'm thankful for all the men that participated in that as well, reading scripture. That was new for us as a church. And I'm thankful to have men who are spiritually minded, who love the Word of God, and who are willing to participate in a service like that. And there's other men that we could have asked uh, to participate as well, but we thank thankful to, to you men who participated in that. If you are here during our Good Friday service, you know where we left off. I cheated a little bit. We didn't want to leave Jesus in the grave at the end of our Good Friday service. And so we did speak of the resurrection a little bit. But today we're going to look at the resurrection and its implications for us as believers in Acts chapter 2. So remember where we are. Jesus has been rejected by men. He's been crucified alongside criminals. Many who looked upon him considered Christ not as the suffering Savior, but they considered him one who was really receiving the just penalty for his blasphemy, for claiming to be the Son of God. For claiming to be able to bring his body back to life after three days. The Jews would uh, then come and ask Pilate, uh, while Jesus and the other criminals were still, while Jesus and the criminals were on the cross, the Jews would come and ask Pilate for the bodies to be taken down because Passover was approaching. Pilate agreed, and he sent centurions out to the crosses, and uh, they went with the intention of breaking the legs of those who were crucified in order to expedite uh, the process of death. Uh, when the centurions came, however, they found that two I'm sorry, that two were still alive, but Christ had already died, and thus fulfilled prophecy that said not a bone of his was broken. Well, uh, while the centurions were there uh, breaking the legs of those criminals who were on the cross. John tells us that prior to Christ's death, he cried out, it is finished, and he gave up the spirit. But during that time, Joseph of Arimathea comes, and he asked if he could have the body of Christ so that he could anoint him and bury him properly. And Pilate grants that request, and so Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus... By the way, Nicodemus, who was once a secret disciple and now comes out of the darkness and makes his faith public by uh, working with Joseph of Arimathea to anoint the body of Jesus and to... Bury him. And there we're told in the book of Matthew that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting uh, opposite the tomb and were watching all of this take place. And then Matthew chapter 27 tells us this in verse 62. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And the last fraud will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go, make it as sure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. And that's it. Jesus is dead. He is buried. The stone is rolled. The seal is applied. As far as the Jewish leaders are concerned at this point, it's over. Jesus, the threat to their power and authority, is gone. The one who denounced their hypocritical, godless faith and drew people away uh, from them and after himself is dead. As far as Pilate and the Romans are concerned, the Jews' lust for blood has been satisfied and the cause of the near riot and the possible insurrection is dead. As far as the followers of Jesus are concerned, their teacher and their friend and their Lord and their messianic hope is dead. The dreams of many people were crushed. Mark 16 tells us that on the first day of the week, uh, Sunday, the disciples could be found mourning and weeping over the death and burial of Christ. Thousands upon thousands... There were many who rejected, but thousands upon thousands had seen or had been affected by his miracle-working power. They had experienced the power and authority of his teaching. Uh, Though many rejected, there were others who were placing legitimate messianic hope in Jesus Christ as the Son of David, the great prophet, the final priest, the coming king, the Messiah. And now all of these have all of their hopes dashed because Jesus is dead. But then Sunday came. Sunday morning, the women. Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and Salome went to the tomb. And the Bible says that as they went in Matthew 28, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. The guards paralyzed with fear, the stone rolled away. And it says when they arrived in Luke 24, verse 2, they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise? And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. And there, just as a little aside, is it amazing that the very first witnesses of the resurrection were women? That God chose to be his first evangelists? This was evidence that Jesus Christ was indeed the Son of God. He did perfectly fulfill the law. He did indeed suffer according to God's predetermined plan. He did indeed defeat death and sin and Satan. He did indeed rise from the dead, just as he had predicted. And so the women went, the first witnesses again of the resurrection, and then the Bible then gives an account of a flurry of post-resurrection appearances. That is, Jesus having risen bodily then appears uh, the same day to Mary Magdalene. He appears... To Peter in Luke chapter 24. He appears to the despondent disciples on the road to Emmaus in Luke uh, 24. He appears to the disciples minus Thomas and then he appears to the disciples with Thomas and then he appears to the disciples who decided they were going to go fishing and he eats breakfast with them on the shore. Remember that in John 21. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us that at some point the risen Jesus appears to 500 disciples all at once. Luke summarizes for us in Acts chapter 1, says he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Post-resurrection appearances, 40 days of appearances to his disciples and to others. But Jesus, we learn, did not rise bodily from the grave so that then he could establish his earthly kingdom with him physically on earth. That, that's not what's happening here. Jesus appears to his disciples in order to embolden them, to help them with that conviction that he is risen and that he is now to be the exalted Lord so that they could fulfill the commission that he would give them. They were to be fully convinced of the reality of his resurrection. And so these disciples have had quite a few amazing weeks. You think you have mood swings. They've gone from the fearful, disappointed, disillusioned, depressed followers of a crucified Messiah to the joy-filled, hope-infused, passionate followers of the risen Son of God in a matter of weeks. And so now, being fully convinced of the resurrection, and being fully convinced of Christ's identity as the Son of God, they obey Him, just as He had said. He said, go into Jerusalem and wait for the promise from the Father. And so they obey. And this is where we take up in Acts chapter 2. Here in Acts chapter 2, we find them in Jerusalem. They're praying and they're waiting for the promise of the Holy Spirit, as Christ has told them. And then something amazing happens on the day of Pentecost. Acts chapter 2, with thousands of Jews present for that festival. Acts chapter 2, verse 1 says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia and Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And we can't really resist just stating that this very clearly tells us what tongues are, right? Uh, All these hearing in their own languages, the mighty works of God being spoken, that's the miracle here. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others, mocking, said they are filled with new wine. Now remember what's happening here. Remember immediately following Christ's death and his burial, the Jewish leaders get together and... Uh, Jewish leaders get together and they come to Pilate and they're concerned. They're concerned that what might happen now is that because Christ had predicted that he would rise again, a rumor might get started. Maybe the disciples will come and they'll steal the body and then after having stolen the body, the rumor will get passed around that Jesus Christ is risen. And so they're very concerned about this. And that's why they send the soldiers and put the seal on the tomb and so on. They're afraid of the rumor mill, that it might get churning and Christ's resurrection might become some, port, some form of urban legend uh, out there. It might garner some type of following. But what do we see in this text that we just read? Pilate and Herod, or the Jewish leaders, or the centurions, were absolutely powerless to stop the birth of Christianity. Absolutely powerless to stop the birth of Christianity. God launched his church not with the whispers of rumors, but with the descent of the powerful Holy Spirit. And so in verse 41, again, the Holy Spirit descends like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. As Christ's opponents would soon learn, more powerful and more concerning for them would not be rumors of resurrection, but the undeniable evidence of the resurrection as seen in the newfound boldness of Christ's disciples. Look at how Peter here, starting at verse 14, is immediately empowered and emboldened by the Spirit. This is Peter who just weeks earlier had denied Christ, and now Peter who weeks Earlier had denied Christ is now going to preach a powerful sermon to Jews who some weeks earlier had rejected and crucified Christ. And look at verse fourteen, and this is where we're going to see his sermon. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, "Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel." And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So those who received his word were baptized and were added that day about 3,000 souls. This is Peter. This is Peter. This is Peter who denied Christ. This is Peter who wept bitterly as his Lord was taken to be crucified, but wasn't bold enough to stand up and declare himself to be his disciple. Peter, who was so slow to believe. Peter, who rebuked Christ when Christ told of his coming death. Peter, who completely missed the significance of the crucifixion. This Peter stands before thousands of Jews with a new-found Holy Spirit-infused boldness and delivers a powerful sermon with what is his main point? The resurrection. The resurrection. We're going to spend the remainder of our time to look at Peter's sermon. Pull out about five points from his sermon. And we're going to learn the importance of the resurrection, how it's central to the Christian faith, and how it is that event which demands repentance from all men. First consider, as we look at Peter's sermon here, he says that the resurrection of Jesus Christ was determined by God from the beginning. It was determined by God from the beginning. Look in verse 22. Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, and he says what? Delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hand of lawless men. What is this? Peter is saying, and he's doing two things here. He's saying, one, you're culpable. You crucified him. You crucified him by the hands of lawless men. You are guilty. You ought to be experiencing the conviction that you're experiencing now. You are guilty, but don't think in any way that you've thwarted God's plan. Don't think in any way that perhaps the resurrection is God's plan B. The fact of the matter is the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ and the resurrection was God's predetermined plan. His definite plan, verse 23, and according to the foreknowledge of God. And again, get it right, foreknowledge is one of those words that you must define properly if you're going to understand New Testament theology. We do not believe that when it says that Jesus Christ was delivered according to the foreknowledge of God, that God simply looked down the corridors of time and saw that his son would be crucified. That's not what foreknowledge means when we speak of divine foreknowledge. He was delivered according to the foreknowledge of God. This was God's predetermined plan. And so Peter makes it plain that the crucifixion and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is God's divine plan from the beginning. We know this because all throughout the life of Jesus Christ, he alluded to his own death and his own resurrection. John 19, verse 10, when Jesus stood before Pilate, Pilate says to Christ, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? And Jesus said this. He answers and says, you would have no authority over me. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. He's saying, this is not your act here. Anything that is able to be executed against me in this this whole chain of events of crucifixion and trial and so on, any authority you have, you only have because the Father has granted it to you. In Acts chapter 4, after the apostles go out empowered by the Holy Spirit and they're preaching and teaching and healing, and uh, the, the uh, religious leaders are upset about this, they call them in and they beat them and they're told uh, not to preach anymore. In Acts chapter 4, those disciples pray to the Lord after suffering. And they're praising God for their worthiness, the fact that uh, they're worthy to suffer for the name of Christ. But they say this in Acts chapter 4, verse 27, For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, what does it say? To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Predestined, predetermined, according to the foreknowledge of God. Again, this was not God's plan B. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and plunged all of the human race under the curse of sin, God has set in motion the plan to redeem mankind and have a people for himself who would be his treasured possession. And it would all be accomplished, as we learned on Friday, through the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. And so Christ gave himself willingly. John 10, verse 17. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It seems like everything's under control. It seems like Christ is there adrift upon the waves of fate, random chance, or the hatred of men. The reality is God is in control. God's predetermined, predestined plan, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Why? So he could save us. Christ willingly bore God's wrath for our sins, allowing him by his grace to be our substitute. He suffered, but he did not suffer simply as a man. He also suffered as the sinless son of God, and so the grave could not hold him. As a son of God, he overcame death and made the way for all who would believe in him to be saved. Acts 2.24 says God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. And so now the resurrection is central to the salvation plan. If you're here this morning and you are a Christian, you confess the resurrection of Christ, right? If you're here this morning and you consider yourself a Christian, but you do not believe in the resurrection, I have some unfortunate news for you. You cannot be a Christian if you don't confess the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Romans chapter 10, verse 9, it says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe... In your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. The resurrection is essential to saving faith. And again, just notice that in all of this, Peter is doing two things. One, don't think you've thwarted God's plan. Don't think you've done something out from under his providence or his sovereign control. But then don't think that because it was according to God's predetermined plan that you're off the hook. And so he says in verse 23, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. How does that all work together? I have no idea. How does the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility all work together? I, I don't know, but I know it's all throughout scripture. And here it is even at the crucifixion of Christ. Man is culpable and guilty, but this was all according to God's foreknown and definite plan. So Peter says in his sermon that Christ's resurrection was determined by God from the beginning. Next of all, He indicates that the resurrection of Jesus Christ actually verifies the authenticity of God's word. We're going to read all the details here because we already read through it once, but verse 25, uh, verse 29, from verse 24 to 31, what is he doing? What's Peter doing? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting David. He's, he's, He's quoting David looking forward to a time where David's descendant, some, someone, some descendant of David, would actually never see corruption uh, in the grave. He says, you'll not let your Holy One see corruption in verse 27. You'll not abandon my soul to Hades or to the place of the grave. David foresaw the day where one of his descendants would actually rise again, would actually defeat death, and would not see corruption. And what Peter is doing is he's bringing the Old Testament, and he's doing theology here. This is not something brand new. Like the New Testament is not something that just comes out of thin air here. This is all founded upon uh, theology. This is the Old Testament. This is, you know, the the phrase that the New Testament is the uh, Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is the New Testament concealed. You've heard that before. And what uh, Peter's doing for us here is he's doing theology. Remember in Luke chapter 24, verse 25, when Jesus appears to those disciples on the road to Emmaus and Jesus Christ, in his great mercy, what does he do as he's walking with these men who are despondent because they had put their hope in Christ, and now Christ is dead, and they haven't heard of the resurrection. And what does Jesus do for them? The Bible says that as he's walking with these disciples, in Acts 24, it says, he, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. There he walks with the disciples, and he does a Bible study with them. Let me show you everywhere in the Old Testament where you can find me i got news for you, it's everywhere. From Genesis to Malachi, all the types and the pictures and the symbols and the festivals and the sacrifices, it all points to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he opens the scriptures. Now, you have sat under some gifted Bible teachers, perhaps. Could you imagine hearing the author of the word speak his own word, showing how the word is all about himself? You've heard people say, maybe preaching a series, finding Jesus in the Old Testament. Like, where's where's Waldo or something? Can we find Jesus in the Old Testament? You don't need to find Jesus in the Old Testament. The Old Testament is all about Christ. And so he opens up the text... And he shows out all points to him. And you could just imagine at some point and there, it tells us in that account that their hearts burned within them as Christ opened the Scriptures. You imagine, and maybe you've experienced this sometimes where you've heard teaching or preaching or you're reading the Word where all of a sudden something comes to light that you had never noticed before in Scripture. And it's almost like a veil is lifted. And you just see the wonder of God's Word. Could you imagine being there at this time where all of a sudden these depressed disciples see it? We see it. It's all about Christ. We see it. What is Jesus doing? He's showing that his life and his death and his burial and his resurrection, all of it affirms and validates the word of God. And John, and, and, and that being said, it also validates Christ's own words. Jesus foretold of his own death and burial and resurrection, and so he had to rise again in order to affirm his own claims. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Speaking of his body. In Matthew 16, he says, From that time Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. In Matthew chapter 26, Jesus said, But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Christ's resurrection affirmed his own veracity. In fact, Jesus kind of set the standard. Do you want to know if I'm the Son of God or the Messiah or whether or not I am the prophet? And simply wait and see whether or not I fulfill my own claims. His resurrection assures us that no one can claim anything other than the fact that he actually is Lord and he is Savior and he is that prophet and he is Messiah. If he did not raise, the fact of the matter is uh, we could discredit Christ and our faith is in vain. Is that an overstatement? If Jesus Christ didn't rise again, then Christianity crumbles. Is that an overstatement? Would you say, well, you know what? Even if there was no resurrection, I'd still want to live the Christian life. And I would say, you're a fool. (laughs) Even if there is no resurrection, you want to live the Christian life? We live the Christian life understanding that we're looking forward to a time of future exaltation and future reward and future uh, relationship in the presence of God for eternity. There's delayed gratification and there's deferred exaltation, and we do all of this understanding that Christ will return, and because of the resurrection hope, we will rise again. That's why we live the Christian life that we live here and now. If there is no resurrection, our faith faith is vain, it's futile, and frankly, it's foolish. 1 Corinthians 15.12, as Jared read earlier, says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Futile, meaningless. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. And even then, those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if, Christ, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most be pitied. Look at verse 19. That's, I mean, I might have lost you a minute ago when I said that if you're determined you can live the Christian life here, even if there's no resurrection, and I said, I would tell you you're foolish. Paul is saying, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, that's not enough. We actually are, of all people, are most to be pitied. How could Paul say that? Because Paul bore in his bodies the marks. Because Paul suffered shipwreck, and he suffered beatings, and he suffered imprisonment multiple times, over and over and over again. And what he's saying is, I would not do anything like this if there was no resurrection. If there's no resurrection, then please, yes, have pity on me, because I'm a fool. No resurrection, no risen Christ. No resurrection, our preaching is vain, our faith is in vain. No resurrection, we're false witnesses. No resurrection, we're still in our sins. No resurrection, those who have already died are perished. No resurrection, no hope. No resurrection, Christ has no credibility. No resurrection, Christianity crumbles and falls. No resurrection, the word of God itself implodes. And so Peter is sure, as he preaches, to say that Christ's resurrection was determined by God from the beginning, and Christ's resurrection verifies the authenticity of the Word of God, including the claims of Christ himself. Next of all, Peter says that the resurrection of Christ, we've already touched on this, is really the central focus of Christianity, and is the focus of our witness. Look in verse 32. He says, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. That's what the disciples were. When the church was birthed, I mean, that's what, the, that, that's what they were, simply witnesses of the resurrection. We were with Christ, we heard his teaching, and we are witnesses of the risen Christ. This truth underpins everything else that we as Christians have to say. You want to talk about, talk about Christ as a good teacher? Okay. You want to talk about Jesus as a prophet? Okay. You want to talk about the love of Christ? Okay. Wonderful, but we've got to share the resurrection. The disciples' encounter with Jesus after his resurrection was so powerful and so important that it was the key subject of their witness everywhere they went. In fact, every time in the New Testament that the disciples are called witnesses, listen, every time in the New Testament the disciples are called witnesses, it's always that of being a witness of the resurrection. Acts chapter 1, verse 22 says, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. Uh, there the disciples are saying, we must ordain one to replace Judas. He says, one of these men must become with us a witness of what? His resurrection. A witness to his resurrection. Acts four thirty three it says, with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. In Acts chapter 4, the Bible says that the authorities were grieved because Peter was doing what? says they are greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Not just the resurrection of Christ, but because Christ is risen, you can be risen. That's what their message was. When Peter spoke to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, verse 39, he says, and we are witnesses of all that he did both in the country of of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree, but God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear. Not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. Verse 42, And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Preaching the resurrection. Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul in Athens. Some of the Epicureans and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him, and some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and, guess, the resurrection. The Gospels and the Epistles exist today because of faith in the reality of the resurrection. Christianity exists today because of the message of the resurrection. If there was no resurrection... Christianity dies in the first century. In fact, Christ's opponents were resting on the hopes that that would be the case. And so, the resurrection becomes the supreme apex on which all of Christianity turns. Why? Well, because our next point, according to Peter, because the resurrection affirms the deity of Christ and crowns him as Lord in Christ. The resurrection affirms his deity and crowns him Lord in Christ. Look at verse 33 of Peter's sermon. It says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Look at Peter's conclusion, his application. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. That's the message. He's risen. And because he's risen, you can be assured. Assured what? He's Lord. He's Messiah. We also know from Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ affirmed the fact, verified the fact that he actually is the Son of God. Romans chapter 1, verse 4 says, And he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The resurrection affirms the deity of Christ. It affirms his identity as the Son of God. It establishes him as Lord. It establishes him as Christ. In the context of the resurrection in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 22, it says this of Christ, of God the Father, What he's done for Christ, it says he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church. That is, he's Lord. As a consequence, what? Anybody who would come to God the Father for salvation must do what? Bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord. Philippians 2 verse 9, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. His resurrection establishes him as Lord so that all men must bow the knee and repent. As we saw earlier in Romans chapter 10 verse 9, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so this morning can we just give that appeal? If you're here this morning and you're not a believer, salvation is open to you. You can be saved. You can receive eternal life. You can receive the promise of resurrection. How? Confess Jesus Christ as Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead. The Bible says you will be saved. You must confess that Christ is risen. We must do this. Why? Because the resurrection also establishes the fact that Jesus Christ will one day return as judge. He's risen, he's exalted, means he's alive, and he's going to return. And when he returns, he doesn't just bring reward, but he also brings judgment. Acts 17, verse 31 says, "...that God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and of this he has given assurance to all by," what? Raising him from the dead. The resurrection tells us that Jesus Christ will return. He's alive, and when he comes, he's going to judge." And so what? You want to be on the right side of that return. Confess him as Lord now, because you'll stand before him as judge later. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. We all have that appointment. The resurrection assures us of it. And so Christ rose, not resuscitated, only to die again. He is resurrected. Resurrection affirms his deity, it affirms his lordship, and the reality that he'll return as judge. Christ is the only risen Lord, the only one to whom men owe their allegiance. Christianity claims exclusivity because we have the risen Lord. In Acts 4, verse 10, Peter and John, after healing a lame man, said this, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. He says this, This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Why is Jesus Christ exclusive? Because Jesus Christ exclusively rose bodily from the grave. So Peter ends his sermon and As any good sermon does, he ends with a call of response. This resurrection was in God's plan from the beginning. The crucifixion, the resurrection, in God's plan from the beginning. You're still culpable, but it was in God's plan from the beginning. The resurrection validates the word of God. Everything Jesus Christ said has been affirmed uh, through the resurrection. The Old Testament scriptures uh, have been affirmed through the resurrection. The resurrection now becomes a central truth that we are witnesses of. His resurrection affirms his deity and crowns him as Lord in Christ. But now, look in verse 37. We're going to be done with this. What Peter says is that the resurrection of Jesus Christ demands repentance from all men. It demands repentance from all men. Verse 37 says, Now when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. And that's the Holy Spirit working through preaching. They were cut to the heart. They're convicted. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? What is this? It's dawning on them. All their guilt is now coming to the surface. They see it. Christ, who we declared to be a blasphemer, Christ, who we denied and asked instead of Jesus to be released, we asked for a murderer to be released in Barabbas. In, uh, they get it. We thought he was stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. We had no understanding that he was bearing our sins. We had no understanding that he was the Son of God. But now it's all coming into focus, and they're absolutely overcome with their own guilt. So they just cry out, what shall we do? What shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. Repent of this. Repent of your rebellion. Repent of your sin. Repent of your rejection. And be baptized every one of you. You're going to identify with the crucified Messiah. You're going to give your life to the crucified Messiah. You're going to die to your old self and rise again to walk in newness of life now in the name of the Messiah the one whom you've crucified. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. There's the grace of God. These men who rejected Christ. Now, Peter just gives this wonderful open invitation. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. No exceptions. The invitation is the same this morning, right? If you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, the invitation is there, repent and be baptized. Every, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, your sins will be forgiven, you receive the Holy Spirit. Baptism doesn't save us, but baptism and repentance and faith are so intertwined, one being the public outward expression of the inward reality. And so repent to be baptized. Why must you repent? Well You've got to repent, because well, you're guilty before God. But, but you also got to get right with Christ, because he's going to return as Lord and judge. And so we started out by saying that Christ's opponents were concerned that the disciples stealing a body, and uh, the disciples might steal the body, and rumors would begin about the resurrection. It's kind of amusing, kind of amusing to see their meager efforts to stop the spread of Christianity. Oh, here we go. We'll put a wax seal here on this on this stone. That'll take care of it. We'll we'll put a couple guards there. That'll take care of it. This this faith won't get off the ground. We'll, We'll take care of this. It's amusing to see their meager efforts to stop the spread of Christianity, and then to see the contrast of how God actually launched the church. In His providence, God arranged it so that all these events took place in Jerusalem at a time when thousands of Jews would be present on the day of Pentecost. And there they are, they're all gathered together. And they think Christ is just kind of fading into His distant memory at this point. Then with a massive audience, God the Father sends the Holy Spirit with outward undeniable signs. All the men who were there from all these different nations hear the mighty acts of God being spoken in their own languages. Beyond this, the crowds would be astonished by the powerful preaching of the uneducated and formerly timid man, Peter. These Holy Spirit-empowered words would penetrate right to the hearts, and these men would be overcome with their guilt. Convinced of Jesus as the Christ, And they themselves would then bow the knee before Jesus as Lord. If the corrupt religious leaders or the civil authorities thought they might be able to keep a lid on this thing, they were sorely mistaken. Christ is risen. He is Lord of his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. All that he sends his Holy Spirit to do will be accomplished. And look what happens next in verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And the church is born. 2,000 years later, here we are, singing songs about the same resurrection, praising the same Christ, unified together by the same Spirit. The Spirit is still making disciples, He's still convincing men of the gospel. He's still transforming skeptics and sinners, the fearful and the lost, into faith-filled followers who have the resurrection on their lips and proclaim it boldly for all to hear. That's who you and I are this morning. If you're here this morning and you have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, you must. It's an open invitation. It's a gracious invitation. God is extending that to you. But understand, don't mistake God's mercy and his grace of extending this invitation to you as if to think that he's going to overlook sin of those who do not bow the knee to Christ. Because Jesus is going to return. He's going to return as judge. And at that time, he not only brings rewards for those who follow him, but he's going to bring judgment for those who deny him. And so this morning, if you haven't yet given your life to Christ, the invitation's there. Just. Bow your head and ask God's forgiveness. Lord, forgive me for my sin. Forgive me for denying Christ. Forgive me for walking in my own way. Uh, I know that I'm a sinner, not just from what I, the acts that I perform, but my very nature. So, Lord, I need salvation. Jesus Christ is the only way. I confess him as Savior, the only way to be saved. I submit to him as Lord, the only rightful authority in my life. And now help me to live for him. The invitation is open, but understand the invitation isn't optional. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for the resurrection. Lord, this morning as a fellowship, as a church, we confess the resurrection. We believe that Jesus Christ rose bodily from the grave and that he's exalted now as Lord over all. We believe that his resurrection affirms his words, all of his claims during his earthly ministry. We believe the resurrection validates the scriptures. We believe the resurrection is the central truth of our faith. We believe believe the resurrection is that which gives us hope. And so, Lord, I pray that you would convince us uh, even to a greater degree of the veracity of the resurrection of Christ. And Lord, we thank you that uh, this is not just some distant event, uh, but that we as believers experience this resurrection power on a daily basis. Lord, you've given us new life, and you've given us a hope that looks forward to even future physical resurrection. Lord, we thank you for the hope, the resurrection hope that you've given us in Christ. We thank you for all that he's accomplished as he came out of the grave, defeating sin, death, and Satan. And we thank you again that he's exalted as Lord. I pray that the confession of Christ as Lord would be easy on our lips. And Lord, we pray this morning for any who are here who have not yet received Christ. Maybe visitors who are unbelievers, but also maybe some who've had understandings of Christianity but have never really made the faith their own. Maybe children of believers maybe those who have been coming for a time but have adopted a nominal Christianity. I pray that you would impress upon their hearts the need to bow the knee to Jesus Christ as Lord and to live wholeheartedly for him, rejoicing in his mercy and his grace, serving him all of our lives, looking forward to his return. Lord, we thank you for this and thank you that the Holy Spirit is still active 2,000 years later, still converting men, still convicting us of our sin, still applying the word of God, still transforming lives, and still building your church. Lord, we thank you for all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.